2 Corinthians 8 is in front of us. This passage may seem really confusing because it's one long flow from what we did last week, and we're kind of in the middle of this passage, and it's very situational information, not as much theology as it is situational. So that's why we're here. We'll travel through it together, and we'll mine out of it the details and the goodness that God has for us. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 through 12. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Clear as mud, isn't it, church? So we pick up in this letter from Paul to the people of Corinth, the people that were part of the church there. And if you remember last week, we started talking a little bit about generosity at the beginning of chapter 8. There's a situation, there's a crisis in Jerusalem, there's poverty, there's famine because there's drought, and there's other confounding factors that have made life in Jerusalem. And for the mother church, that's where the church sort of started there in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, and life has gotten really hard for the Jewish believers that live there. So Paul has taken it upon himself to take up a relief offering from the non-Jewish, the Gentile, the Greek churches and then carry that offering to relieve the pain and the difficulty of the people that are suffering in Jerusalem. And that's where we started last week. So the context of all that Paul was writing and that we read today is under that lens, is in that context of this offering that is being taken from the churches in Greece and going to be taken to the saints in Jerusalem. So we'll be talking again this week about some concepts regarding money, finances, church and finances, and things like that. So a couple of questions just to get our mental juices flowing. Have you ever wanted something you just couldn't afford? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The question is, did you buy it anyway? Did you put it on credit? Did you put it on layaway? Did you put it on plastic? Of course, all of us have experienced that. I think it's healthy to experience that. Money is an interesting commodity. It forces us, at least most of us, to make choices. We want different things. We want competing things, but we can't afford them all. So we have to pick and choose what it is we purchase, what it is we buy, where it is we invest. Whether you're 17 or 97, we still have these choices to make in our lives. And most of our choices, and I've mentioned 17-year-olds because the teenagers kind of sometimes feel like they're in a different category that they just get to spend and don't have to worry about saving. But when you're young, it's the time to learn these principles of healthy, spiritual, financial management. Would you agree, older folks? Is anybody in here, you would say that you wished you had had a better management of money when you were younger? Anybody? You regretted maybe you didn't start saving till too late in life? How many of you, your parents told you save when you're young? Anybody? My dad did. Of course, I ignored him because what do parents know, right? 
So I don't want to shy away. We don't want to shy away from talking about money. Money makes the world go round. Money's involved in all kinds of aspects of our lives. We spend it, we earn it, we waste it. And our choices boil down to how much am I going to spend, how much am I going to save, and how much am I going to give? That's the basic economics. How much do I spend? How much do I save? How much do I give? Most people in our culture, in our current economy, don't get past the how much am I going to spend. The average American, well, let me put it this way, one out of five Americans saves nothing for long or short-term goals. They're living paycheck to paycheck, day to day, hand to mouth. They have nothing for emergencies, nothing for the future, short-term, long-term goals. But of those that do save, they save very little typically. What are the reasons that people don't save? Well, the reasons cited are my expenses are too high, I'm already in debt, and I just haven't gotten around to it. Those are some of the reasons why people don't save. Spending, we do that naturally. Saving, that can come with practice. But then giving is that third tier where once you've got past the first two, then we have to think about giving, generosity in our lives. And Americans are giving more to charity now than they have in the past. So that was good news. The bad news is that there are fewer people giving it. So there are fewer people that are contributing to the overall giving that we find among Americans. The share of Americans who give money to charity has fallen and continues to fall from about 68.5% in 2002 to 53% in 2016, the most recent year that the data was available. So we see about roughly half of the people you meet, half the people in here, give nothing to charity. Now we're a controlled group here. This is the church. So I think we might see those statistics be a little different in this room. But the reality is in America, roughly 50% of people give nothing to charity to help others. We're giving within our family. We're giving with our kids. But when it comes to people outside the family, outside my tribe, outside my group, that's up to them. That's their issue. So this raises the next question. Do we have a responsibility to one another financially? As Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? What is the responsibility and how does that work biblically? Remember, this is the background of this church in Greece, in Macedonia and in southern Greece. Paul is saying to them, hey, I need you guys to rally some financial support for these people that are hurting over here. Now remember, there's no FEMA, there's no Red Cross, there's no Relief for the Hungry program. What they're going to get is going to be from the church. And isn't that who we oftentimes see showing up at a time of crisis? The church is there. Because Christ teaches and exemplifies a culture of thankfulness and generosity. God's people are generous and compassionate people. Because God's spirit is generous and compassionate. Favorite passage of mine in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15 and you'll see why it's my favorite. Deuteronomy 15.1 says, here's how God wants his people with no welfare system, with none of these things. Here's how you handle finances. He says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. Now, come on, church. That's worth a round of applause right there. huh? That's, that's fantastic. I mean, what if the credit card company said, you know what? Seven years, I'll cancel your debt. What if your mortgage bank said, oh, it's been seven years, we'll cancel you. We loaned you money, but you know, you've been paying it back, but seven years, it's the time for releasing of debts. Think about how many people 
suffer under a financial load that they just can't get free from. They didn't have bankruptcy. If you were in debt, you went into slavery. That's how you paid your debt back. You became somebody's slave until you could pay your debt back and then you'd be free. But that would only last for the Israelite. That would only last seven years. God was not interested in people being lifetime slaves for financial reasons. So they'd be released in seven years. It goes on to say, verse 10, give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Sometimes when we give or sometimes when we don't, it's because of how we feel it will or will not be used. We think that if I give to somebody to help them out, Jesus said, lend, give, and don't expect anything in return. See, we get upset, and some people have said, you know what, I gave to somebody, and they took advantage of me. I'm not giving ever again. Well, your reward is not from them. Did you read what it just said? It's the same thing in Deuteronomy. Jesus gives commentary in the New Testament. Your reward is not from them. Where's your reward from? God, who sees in secret, rewards you openly. When you give and are generous towards someone else, then God says, ah, I'm watching. I'll take care of you. I'm going to bless that generosity. Now, Jesus, in our lives, creates a financial culture that we learn from him. Because when I was in the world, before I was saved, like many of you, I was on my own. We had to make ends meet. We had to work, work, work. We had to do our thing. Now, please don't misunderstand. The Bible is pretty clear about the importance of work. So I'm not saying being a Christian means you don't work. Quite the opposite. Whatever we do, we do heartily as unto the Lord. We should be the best employees. But there was oftentimes anxiety. Anybody ever experienced anxiety when it comes to money? Oh, yeah. Has anybody ever misused money? Been stupid with money? Wasted money? Of course we have. We all have done it. And then you get saved and you begin to relearn everything in your life. Relationships with people and even my relationship to money. I learned that God tells me, Where your treasure is, Steve, that's where your heart's going to be. So if you're storing up treasures on earth, you're going to have an earthly-oriented heart. But if I'm storing up treasures in heaven, then I'm going to have a heavenly-oriented heart. Jesus goes on to tell us we can't serve two masters. Same section. Can't serve God and money. If I live to serve the almighty dollar, and that's my prime focus, that's going to take my life in a direction contrary to God, who wants me to love not money, but people. I'm supposed to love people and use money, not love money and use people. So this is a culture I have to learn. James W. Frick said, don't tell me where your priorities are. Show me where you spend your money, and I'll tell you where your priorities are. How we use money, because it creates those choices, shows us really where our heart is. So part of being a new creation is learning and living this new culture, financial culture of Christ. Because now I have a heavenly father. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. I didn't have that before. I was on my own. I was trying to make my own way, responsible for my own promotion, this and that. And I found, and you found, hopefully, A God who says, I'm going to be a heavenly father to you. Is God poor? If he needs something, does he have to go, hey, Steve, you know, can you loan me 10 bucks? There's some people in Africa that need some help. 
Does God have resources? Does he own the cattle in a thousand hills? The Bible says, you guys look like you're confused, like you don't know the answer. Of course, Pastor Steve, God is not poor. He says, look, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you guys. I'm self-sufficient. So what we have is a father now who cares for us. He cares for the lilies of the field. He cares for his creation. He cares for his children. So I can rest and go, okay, if I learn how to serve God, how to love God in all areas of my life, including financial, I trust by faith that God will take care of all of my needs. And that's what we find. And I think God's people over the centuries have found that to be a yes and an amen. Isn't that true, church? As you trust the Lord, then he takes care of your needs. He may not give you everything you want, but the Bible says, I've never seen one of God's children begging for bread. God's children will always have what they need. So the first thing he deals with as we get into this passage, the first problem that's not from faith is pressured giving. Pressured giving is the world's way, not God's way. The second thing is abuse of what's given. Abusing what's given for my own purposes or for the purposes of an individual is not God's way. God's way is generosity. So those are two things, and I think those are two things that oftentimes keep people from being generous. They get frustrated because there's pressure to give. They've experienced that in church, and they get frustrated because they see all the ways that money that's given to God is abused by men for their own purposes. Are we together in that? Do I live under a rock or do we see these things? Yes, okay. So those are the two things we're gonna look at. Again, the passage is very business-like. So, and if you're here for the first time, you know we don't preach on money every week. It's just where we are in the scriptures. And we'll deal with it here and then we'll move on to other things. But we also don't wanna ignore it. That's why we go verse by verse through the Bible. We deal with everything as it comes up and in the proportion that it comes up. So here we are, verse eight, Paul talking to the Corinthian church about this offering he's collecting. He says, I speak not by commandment or by authoritative demand, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." So Paul's given them two examples of people that are eager to give. One is the Macedonian church. We talked about them last week. They were afflicted. They were struggling. They were poor, and yet they were really generous. So they were, for Paul, an example of the grace of God that allows someone who's poor to give to someone who's poorer. And we dealt with that last week. And then he gives the second example of God's grace and generosity, and it's Jesus. That Jesus was rich, and he became poor, so that we could become rich. He gave so that others could benefit. And he gives these two examples of the grace of God. Both of them very eager to be generous. Mom and dad, isn't it great to see your kids share? Isn't it great when you see your kids kind of be generous? When you hear that story that you sent your kid to school with lunch and they sit next to a kid that didn't have lunch and they cut their peanut butter jelly sandwich in half. And as a parent, doesn't that bless your heart? Come on, moms and dads. We don't we want to raise generous kids? Who wants to raise bullies? Anybody want to raise bullies? We want to raise generous kids. It pleases you when you see your kids share and be generous. And I think that's from God. It pleases God when his children don't act like they're poor and hoard for themselves, but instead are eager to be generous with what God has given his children. 
So notice the first thing that just stands out to me, Paul says, I speak not by commandment. Now, Paul could have spoken by commandment. He could have given them the law of giving. He could have said, you know, you guys know what the law says. The law says you should be tithing. And I always get those looks because most of us, even though you've grown up in the New Testament church, have grown up, especially when it's convenient, under law. And tithing is a convenient way for pastors to pressure people to give money for projects. I mean, we can use fundraisers, we can use thermometers, we can use yard sales, we can use bake sales, and certainly there's the occasional beef and beer that can be used to raise money for God's purposes. Well-meaning pastors that want to expand the kingdom, but feeling like God's not doing it. So now instead of exercising faith and prayer, like, you know, George Mueller, George Mueller prayed and prayed and prayed, and God provided for him to care for thousands of orphans just through prayer, never taking an offering, never begging for money. But you've been brought up under law and tithing. Tithing simply means a tenth. And look, if you want to give 10%, I think that's fantastic. Do it. But don't do it out of obligation. See, sometimes we do things because we feel manipulated or we feel pressured. And so we tithe because the law says tithe. Tithing was never brought into the church. Tithing is part of the Jewish law. But when the church was born and the apostles were talking about now these Gentiles are getting saved and filled with the Spirit, what do we tell them to do? One of the things on the list was not tell them to tithe. The Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be saved. What we see in the New Testament is grace giving, is love giving, is cheerful giving, is reaping and sowing. These are things we'll go through in 2 Corinthians 9. So grace and love do way more to benefit generosity than law does. Law will give people a minimum. Love will break your heart. The love of Christ will break your heart. So instead of saying, I command you, he's very gentle with them. Do you see that? He's very careful. He says, I'm not laying down the law for you. Instead, what's he doing? I'm just simply testing the sincerity of your faith by the eagerness of others. Look, the Macedonian church, they heard about you guys saying you were going to give. They got excited. They're poor and they were eager to give. Evidently, they had genuine love for the people in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ dwelling in heaven. You know, he didn't begin to exist when he was born. You know that. This is theology 101. Jesus was eternally existent, is the eternally existent son of God. He took on human form as a baby, but he existed in heaven where streets are paved with gold. Now, I don't know what your street is paved with, asphalt probably. I lived on a gravel road for a long time. Gravel's okay with me. In heaven, streets are paved with gold. Now, here, it's about $100,000 to pave a mile of road with asphalt. How much do you think it is to pave a mile of road with gold? Cha-ching, right there. That's some money. You got to have a lot of money to pave your street with gold. So one example we know is eternally the riches of God in heaven. And Jesus chose willingly and eagerly because of love he and the Father worked it all out to take on human form. Not to be born in a palace, but to be born to a poor family from Nazareth. Carpenter's son. If I'm going to have my son be born, I don't want him to be born into a well-off family where he's got everything he needs. But God chose, well, Joseph and Mary were so poor that when they came to dedicate their son in the temple, they couldn't even afford a sacrifice like a lamb 
they had to bring the money for just two simple turtle doves. That was all they could afford. That was the cheapest sacrifice you could offer. So they were poor. It's a poor family. And that same son of God became even poorer, emptied himself, and hung on a cross so that we, through his poverty and his rejection, could become eternally wealthy. You know, you have an inheritance waiting for you, right? You got a house under construction in heaven for you, where the streets are paved with gold. And in heaven, you won't care because it's everywhere. So the riches of heaven, the spiritual riches, there's no comparison. What, what Jesus did for us is really unfathomable. I mean, imagine going down to the homeless shelter and taking a checkbook with you and clearing out your bank account, zeroing it out, handing the check to a homeless person, then trading clothes with them, saying, here, give me your clothes. I'll take your rags. Here's the note to my home. Here's the note to my car. You get it all. That's what Jesus did. Can you even fathom that? Come on, I can't. That's like unrealistic. Who would do that? But that's what Jesus did. And he did it willingly. The father didn't force the son to do that. You know this. So he did it willingly and eagerly. You know, it's easy to say that we love somebody. Some of you have grown up hearing the words, but with no actions connected. So Paul says, look, I'm not forcing you. I'm not turning the screws to you. I'm not going to have a yard sale. I'm not going to coerce you. I'm just looking to see that you really do love, that love is really present in your church. And one of the ways love becomes visible is through generosity. Are you with me, church? Okay. Just testing or examining for genuineness, the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Jesus was diligent and the Macedonian church was diligent. As a matter of fact, one more thing before we move on. When Jesus was on the cross, you know, there are seven statements of Jesus from the cross. One of the things he said is, it is finished. Three words in English, one word in Greek, tetelestai. Have you heard of that word? That's the word in Greek that we translate, it is finished, and sort of a business term, and it means paid in full. It's as if Jesus took all of that debt, not financial, our sin debt. I become rich, not materially. I become rich spiritually. My debt is forgiven. My slate is wiped clear. And now I have a father in heaven with a humongous inheritance that I have to wait for. And I'll get when I get to see him. That's what I've inherited. Man. So that's the example he gives to the Corinthians. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you and I and us, through his poverty, might become rich. And there's someone in this world that through you living at a little bit lower state than you could, could possibly live at a little higher state than they could. And that's how it works. And Paul's going to give example of this. Hang with me. Verse 10, he says, in this I give advice. He's not pressuring them. He's just saying, look, I'm just giving you guys advice. You see how cautiously Paul is walking here? I give advice. It's to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. So he says, a year ago, you guys were saying you were all in. Your excitement encouraged the Macedonians. 
And now it's time to take up the collection. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. You've made a pledge and now it's time to see it through. And he explains this a little bit more in verse 12. He says, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. So evidently they had pledged quite a large amount. And now Paul is saying, now it's time to see it through. You've said it, now you've got to do it. Words are meaningless without intent and follow through. So we say something, we have to intend to actually do it and then actually follow through with that. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. I think it's Acts chapter five. I'm going from memory. They pledge to sell a piece of land and give all of the money to the people in need. But then what really happens is they sell the land and they give some of the money to people in need. Now, no one forced them to say that they would give all the money. They said it out of their own desire. They had a desire, and that's a good thing. The problem was when it came time to write the check, ah, they had a hitch in their giddy up. It's kind of like the guy that won $3 million, and he said, I am going to give a quarter of it to charity. And then when it came time to give it, well, he gave a quarter of it. Now he only has $2,999,909.75. See, it sounds good to say, I'm going to give a quarter of my $3 million, and you think 25%, but then he was only thinking 25 cents. And sometimes that's how it happens for us. And I appreciate that you have generous, willing hearts, and you want to give. And this is why in some churches, there are uh, pledge programs where we get the emotions going. We're going to have this building project or have that thing going on, and we're doing for this thing in three years from now. We wanted you to Here's the pledge cards. I want you to pledge for three years from now. And everybody gets excited and there's missions, there's building. Some pastors live under the pressure of if you're not building something, people get bored and they stop giving. I've heard this. So you always got to be building something so people can continue to have something to give for. That misses the point altogether. So these pledges, the problem is right here, Paul says, if there's a willing mind, that's wonderful. It's accepted according to what you have. At the moment, not according to what you don't have. Paul is not saying that you need to sell your house and sell your car and and give it all to the poor. He told that to the rich young ruler. But he's just saying, look, based on how you prosper, based on what you have, and there's a time right now that you may be a little more prosperous than you were six months ago or two years ago or five years ago. Maybe you got a raise. Maybe you got a, a change in job. Maybe you got a promotion. Then your giving, your generosity can be proportional to that. We sit in this building, we pave the parking lot. God's provided. The reason we don't beat you up for money and we don't have pledge drives and auctions and yard sale, I got better things to do with my life than sort through the junk people bring to try to sell because God is poor and needs money. It's ridiculous. We've trusted the Lord. We've said, here's the need. If you feel like giving to it, if God's moving you, then give to it. If not, no problem. You know, right now we're talking about paving the driveway. It's getting dangerous. I have a pickup truck. I'm cool with it. I lived on a gravel road. I could care less whether we paved the driveway or not. I mean, really, as far as I'm concerned, personally, I'm okay with potholes. And you should have seen our road when it was just gravel. Oh, man, it was terrible. So we don't have to feel this pressure to pressure you in a thousand different schemes and gimmicks to give because if nobody's into the project and it doesn't get supported, then we don't pave the driveway. It's okay. We're going to still teach the Bible. We still worship the Lord. 
But if God is doing a work there and people give to the cause, then we'll do it. And there's no pressure. Isn't that great? How many of you have been involved in churches where there's been a lot of financial pressure? And then there's guilt and there's obligation and there's fear. And oh, if you don't give, God's not going to bless you. You ever heard that? Can I just tell you, if you've ever thought that, if I don't give, God's not going to bless me, then you don't know the grace of God. God has blessed me way beyond whatever I've ever given to him. Now, in chapter nine, we're going to learn the principle of reaping and sowing. Here's what you have to know. Not if you don't give, God's not going to bless you. What you have to know is the degree to which you give is the degree to which you receive. It's an agricultural situation. You plant one tomato seed, you're going to get one tomato bush, and it's going to have 10, 12 tomatoes on it, and you'll get that. You'll get 10 or 12 tomatoes. But if you really like tomatoes, tomato cucumber salad in the summertime, one of my favorites. But if you want to get a lot of tomatoes, what do you have to do? You got to plant a lot of seeds. Stick around for chapter nine. We'll uh, hash that out some more. He doesn't want them to be burdened. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. I mean, I'm not asking you to take out a loan so that you can help the people in Jerusalem. Not that you should go into debt so others could get out of debt. That doesn't honor God. He says, but by any quality that now at this time, your abundance may supply their lack that their abundance also may supply your lack. So he says, look, at this time, you Corinthians, Corinth was a wealthy city. Their economy was prosperous. Business was booming. They were at a crossroads of commerce. They were a church of means. And the church in Jerusalem was a church without means. So he's saying, right now, you guys are blessed and they're poor. How about you take some of what you have and pass it on to them? And then maybe there'll come a time down the road when you have a need and they can help you out. Isn't that wonderful? So do we have a responsibility to one another in community? Not a forced obligation, but a willing opportunity to help each other out. The way that you measured out to others, church, what is it? It's measured back to you. And so you see what he's saying by inequality. Some have more, some have less, but we can help each other out. But see, we live in a culture, and this is why I mention this. We live in a culture that says, you work hard for what you have, If you've collected it, if you've earned it, if you've made it, well, you keep it all to yourself. Let them figure it out for themselves. It's their responsibility. It's the government's responsibility. It's someone else's responsibility. Tough stuff, isn't it? But here's the deal. And here's the reality. Paul says, verse 15, he says that there may be an equality or a balance. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now he's quoting Exodus, I think it's chapter 16. Remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. God set them free through the Passover and out they come. They just take what they can carry at the minute because they're going to be nomadic. It's going to turn out to be 40 years. And they get out into the wilderness and they start to feel the stomach pains. You know, they've eaten the bread they brought out, but now they're going, oh, where's Costco? Where's Walmart? Where we get food? I mean, there's a million of us out here in the wilderness. What are we going to eat? And they start to complain to Moses, hey, Mo, we got to get some food. I mean, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? We were better off when we were slaves and had food to eat. Now we're free and we ain't got nothing. And Moses says, you watch what God is going to do. And what does God do? He rains down manna, bread from heaven. God has resources, man. God has ways. So you think it's all up to you. You think I got to hoard, I got to hoard. Because if I give away stuff. If I am generous, 
then I'm going to do without myself. I'm not going to have what I need. God says, you test me. You try me. You become a conduit for resources and you watch how I bless your life. So the bread rains down. What's it called, church? It's called manna, which means, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They're not very creative. They go, what is it? We'll call it manna, I guess. It's manna. What is it? And so it would come down every morning. They'd have to collect. If they tried to collect for a week or a year, what would happen to it? It would get rotten and get moldy. And they learned the principle that I have to rely on God every day for my needs. And then Jesus confirms this when he teaches the disciples to pray. He teaches them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now we have what we need for today and then we save some for later. Look, you know, this is a challenge. This is why law just doesn't work because it's a challenge to figure these things out. There's grace involved. I don't want my kids, because I love my kids, I don't want them to have to take care of me financially when I'm older. So I want to save some for then. You know, I think that's good wisdom. I think parents, the Bible says, save up for their children. But how much? How much do I keep? How much do I need to live? I mean, do I need all of those channels? Do I need that kind of car? Is this kind of car okay? Can I do without that and get this? I mean, it's always choices. So my heart's desire, and I hope it's yours too, is I want to live as simply as I can. I want to save as wisely as I can. And I want to give as generously as I can. And how that works out, it depends on a lot of factors. I mean, some people reverse tithe. If you make a couple million dollars a year, half a million dollars, whatever it is, some people give back 90%. They give away 90%. I've heard stories of people that have given their whole inheritance to help build churches. It's a book called The God Who Hung on a Cross about a family from Virginia Beach. They own car dealerships. They'd made tons of money getting to the end of their lives. They were estate planning and they brought their kids together. They said, look, kids, we love you, but we're giving your inheritance to build churches. What do you think? The kids were like, eh, that's great. Sounds good to us. The kids were all doing okay financially. And so he who gathered lot had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. So as they gathered daily the manna, When they brought it all together, what did they find out? There's some people were real aggressive gatherers. My brother, Halloween time, he would run house to house gathering up Halloween candy. I mean, he was aggressive. I was a little slower. So we'd get back and he'd have all this whole trash bag full of Halloween candy. And I had a little plastic pumpkin full. And he'd order his all out. He knew where the Kit Kat bars went. He had it all in order. So he didn't know this principle, so he didn't share with me. Then I'd steal that Snickers bar. And he'd come downstairs and he'd see the little spot open, right? Where's that Snickers bar? So when they bring it all together, all the manna together, what they found out is that the people that were able to gather a lot, the the young folks that were vibrant and could really get down and bend down and gather that manna, they had a lot, but they didn't have too much. And the ones that were weaker, couldn't walk, they had physical ailments, they couldn't collect as much. Well, they didn't have a lack. Everybody had everything they needed. You know, there is enough food in the world to feed everybody. There's so much food in the world. The problem is the people that have a lot of it would have to have less of it. So the people that don't have any of it can have a little more. We'd have to be a little more self-controlled in our consumption. And that's the challenge in America, isn't it? We're consumer-driven. We hoard. So the point that Paul is bringing up is that they learned that you can't hoard. God's principle is not hoarding. It's sharing. Now, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a savings account. You shouldn't save for the future. I'm saying you got to work this out with the Lord. All right, the second thing, and we'll do this pretty quickly, you get his idea, willing and love in giving, not pressure 
The second thing is, what about abuses? What about the televangelists? What about the Vatican? What about the financial abuses that we experience? Maybe I just shouldn't give. This next section, the answer for abusiveness with finances that are given to God is accountability. Now we'll roll through this pretty quickly. Verse 16 says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you, the Corinthians, into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, the encouragement to go to them, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. He came on his own. He wanted to come. And we have sent with him, he's not by himself, the brother whose praises in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Now, just stop right there. Give me your attention. Paul says, hey, Titus is going to come and help collect this money, get the offering together. And he's going to bring this other guy who is well-known and everybody else chose. He wasn't just some random guy. He wasn't Paul's selection. Paul is doing everything he can to keep arm's distance from the handling of this money. Do you see that? And he says, there's going to be these two guys. There's going to be a third. But this is the gist of it is verse 20. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. Paul says, I want to be above board, accountable, and blameless. Do you guys know I have no idea at this church who gives what? I never see it. I never see what comes in and from who. I do know kind of what comes in in a general way. You know, being a pastor is a difficult job. It's hard to budget when you never know from month to month what you're going to receive. But man, we have a faithful God. And that's what gives me peace in all these things. But I keep an arm's distance as best I can. We have teams that oversee this kind of thing for us as a church. And if you ever have any questions about finances, the most important thing to me as your pastor is trust. So that's why Paul is going out of his way. It's a large gift and it could be easily abused or taken for personal use. But Paul says, I'm going to, verse 21, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So he says, and I think we would do well to listen, if you ever meet a person or a pastor at a church where the pastor says, well, I'm only accountable to God and he knows my heart, then run away. Don't give them a dime. Don't give them a penny. Matter of fact, Paul knew the culture at his time, the culture of abuse. You think anything has changed in a couple thousand years? You think there's still people that abuse religion and take advantage of people for their own purposes? Yes, that happened at Paul's time. Matter of fact, there's this little book. Hang with me just a couple more minutes. There's a little book called the Didache. It's the greatest book no one's ever read. This is a book that was discovered. It's one of the earliest known manuals outside of the Bible on Christian living. So a Christian community wrote a manual on how Christian living at their time, somewhere between the Gospels and the Apostle Paul, this was written. And this is what it says in chapter 11 of this book called the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but he must not remain more than one day or two if there's a need. If he stays three days, he's a false prophet. Nobody's sponging off people. And when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread to last him until his next night of lodging. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. I think God's people would do well to take that advice. Paul is going out of his way to say, not just honorable in the sight of the Lord, but honorable or accountable in the sight of men. We don't mess around with money. 
Verse 22, and I'll just finish it up. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So this passage is bookended by love at the beginning, sincerity of love, and love at the end, the proof of love at the end. So I pray that God would provide for your life, for more than you need, so that you have something to share with others who have a need, and that God's love would move you to have a generous and compassionate heart. Amen, church? Amen.